Hello, everybody. This is your host, David Rayburn. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Aaron Carroll. Uh, Dr. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University, as well as the associate dean for research mentoring. He's also the director for the Center of Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and he has a YouTube channel called the Healthcare Triage. Welcome, Dr. Carroll. Thanks for having me. All right. So today, we're going to be talking about something that you have interest in, research and statistics. Okay. So we are going to kind of run through some definitions. It's only 1.5% of the board content, <laughs> but I feel like it's something that's always tested. And if you just commit some things to memory, I feel like we'll be in good shape. I, f- I laugh because it's the part that I always get excited when we finally get to it, and I think everyone else just assumes they're going to miss it. But it's great. You should get it right. And it is at the bottom of the content outline, I will Yes, say. I know. It's, it's always when I feel good when I get to that section. <laughs> All right, so I feel like a good way for us to get started is to just kind of run through the different study types, um, and then we can talk about which is going to be the best level of evidence for the study types. So if you don't mind, we'll just maybe we'll start with randomized control trials. Oh, you want? Well, we should. I would say start at the bottom. Okay, it's probably easier. All right, those are the best. That's the that's the top. So how about some case reports and case series, maybe? So when I like to think about this. Uh, the worst kind of study that you could have or the worst kind of evidence you could have is basically an anecdote. That's someone just telling you that they know something is true because it happened to them. A case series is basically just a collection of anecdotes. That's all it is. In other words, that one anecdote, you have like three to five and say, oh, look, I have now a bunch of people who said something is right or something is affecting them in this way. That's why it is. They have no kind of real validity or, or sort of anything to say generalizably to the rest of the world. So you should take them with a grain of salt. The infamous study that that linked vaccines to autism that's now been retracted by BMJ was a glorified case series. It was just a bunch of, of patients who had both potentially some kind of neurodevelopmental problem that, that maybe was autism, but, but looks like it might not have been, and had had vaccines, and that's all it was. And so there's almost nothing you can have there at all. I think when you go a little bit higher than that, you're probably going to get now to a case control study. I'm just looking to see if that's in your list or before that. Okay, so okay, cross sectional. All right, cross sectional. So cross sectional is just above that, and that's basically if you just want to look at a group of people and see is anything associated with something else at one point in time. Uh, you could say like, uh, you know, is this being male more likely to be associated with the disease. You could say uh, is you know having some sort of risk factor more or less likely to be associated with some other syndrome that you have. It's just getting a group of people together, a slice or a cross section, if you will, of society, and then trying to see what they look like together. Right above that would be probably a case control study. A case control study is where something is rare and hard to find, be it you know a rare disease or something like that, you get a bunch of people who have, say, a condition, they would be your cases, and then you get a bunch of people who do not have the condition, that would be controls, and then you try to see what makes the cases different than the controls. And so if we were looking for something very, very rare uh, that, that isn't common, we could at least try to get 10, 20, 30, maybe even 100 people who have the disease, try to match them up with uh, people who don't have the disease, and see if anything is different. It's better than a cross-sectional study because you're able to actually control for the number of people with the disease. If I take a cross-section of society, I won't get a bunch of rare things. But if I specifically go out and find them, then we can start to look for uh, actual links between what is going on with the diseases and what, what is not. All the studies that you see that link, say, cell phone towers to cancer or uh, you know a, a rare 
you know, epic rare problem with something that we eat. Those are almost always case control studies. I was going to say food poisoning outbreaks yeah. are typically case controls. Yeah, because because we have to find the cases. The, the the problem with this is it's subject to what we call recall bias, which is a real problem in the sense that people remember things very differently when they get rare diseases than they do if they do not. So if I find a group of people these days with brain cancer and I say, hey, did you use your cell phone a lot? They go, oh my God, I've heard cell phones cause cancer. Yes, I use mine all the time. And if you talk to people who don't have brain cancer, like cell phones, I don't know. I don't keep track of that stuff. So there are real problems with that. But it's still better than a cross-sectional study in that you can, you can answer some better questions. But it's still really just finding associations. Better than a case control study would be, I mean, a case, yeah, a case control study would be a cohort study. And cohort studies usually come in two flavors, retrospective and prospective. But the gist of them is I get a bunch of people, I follow them over a period of time, and then I see over time how the people where something happened to them are different than the people where it did not. It's better than a case control study because it is much less subject to the biases that we are worried about. A retrospective cohort study is I get a bunch of people together and I ask them all about the past a prospective cohort study, which is almost always better, is I enroll a bunch of people in my study and then I follow them for a long period of time and I see, hey, what happens to the people who use cell phones a lot versus the people that don't. And obviously more difficult for the prospective, more money, time involved, and hence why the retrospective is easy. You just mine some data and yep. put and out some information. The, the big studies that we have that talk about risk factors, the things we talk about like your Framingham studies, those are the big massive prospective cohort studies that have potentially changed the way that we practice. The nurse's health study is this, or yeah, I think it's the nurse's health study, is this huge cohort study that they've been following the same group of nurses for like 30 years, and it's provided a wealth of information because it is incredibly difficult and expensive, of course, to do prospective 30-year cohort studies. Uh, some of the big governmental studies where they try to go back to the same people year after year after year and get more data are big cohort studies. A bunch of year ago, years ago, they tried to start the National Children's Study, which is going to be this massive follow 100,000 kids for years to see what happens, and it fell apart because it was just too expensive and too unwieldy. So it's very hard to do these, but those are sort of the highest level of observational studies that we have because, because at least then we have reasonable good statistics and way to do things to try to figure out are things related to each other? Are there really good correlations? Now to the MACDAD. Right. Well, I would actually say we can even get into the gradations of the MACDAD. You can't, <laughs> you can't start to talk about causation until you get into to, to controlled trials or interventional trials. And the big breakdown is everything I've described previously is an observational study. It's where we just look. We haven't actually done anything. We've just looked at the world and said, what's going on? The, the break point is if we do interventional studies. Now I'm going to take groups and I'm going to do things to them to see if things change. And that's a more controlled environment, and it allows us to have greater faith that what we're doing is actually the reason that stuff is happening. Of course, if you don't blind these studies, which means that they don't know what group they're in, if you don't control for these studies to see how would not have making a difference been better than making a difference, then you still do lack the, 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 the assurity that really that there's causation here, that you've got it. So, you know, I could give a bunch of kids sugar and then say, look, the kids got more hyper, therefore that's it. But if I don't have a control group where I don't give them sugar, then I don't know that it's the sugar that really made the difference. And so what we really need to do to have the most evidence that something is causal is to create a randomized controlled trial. First, we have to give 
the intervention to people randomly so that we don't bias it in some way, like only give boys the sugar and not give girls the sugar. So we have to make sure that it's random. We also have to make sure that it's controlled and that we have a good control so that we know that the intervention we made is the difference between what did or did not happen afterwards. And we have to have you know, it to be blinded in a perfect situation so that neither the biases of the participants nor the researchers come into play in either the assignment of the intervention or how we're going to measure it. So a randomized, double-blinded, which means you blind both the participants and the researchers, controlled trial is sort of the, the pinnacle. That's sort of the best that we can do in terms of research. And that is when we can absolutely, you know, or at least I should say we should be most confident in using the word cause. That, that if you get a question that says, you know, can we be assured of causation, it has to be a randomized controlled trial. You can get into some funky statistics where people talk about, you know, how to make observational trials more closer to causality using instrumental variables. I doubt that'll be on the board. So if they ask about causality, it's going to be randomized controlled trials. How to manipulate the database. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess the maybe one step higher than that would be meta-analyses and systematic reviews. But that's really just pooling a bunch of stuff together to determine if all of these trials actually were doing what they were supposed to. Is that is that so the correct it understanding? Is, it's sort of. It's like I, I'm not like I, I hesitate to say even better. Like the highest because it's sort of like a sidestep. So a meta a systematic review is basically a review article with methods that says we're going to be very rigorous in what studies make the review and what studies do not make the review, and how we lump them together so that if you could actually replicate this. You could go to the literature, perform the same searches, find the same studies, read them, pool them, find the same answers. A meta-analysis is a systematic review with, with pooled statistics, where I say, I'm going to take a bunch of randomized controlled trials, pool them all together, and then run the analyses as if it was one big study uh, as opposed to lots of little studies. The reason that I don't necessarily say that our meta-analysis is always better is you have a problem with garbage in, garbage out. Yep. Um, if, you're, if you're grouping together randomized controlled trials that are heterogeneous, meaning they're very different, then, then it might not be good in, in doing that. And the, the answer that you get by pooling them might not be quote-unquote better than the answer you wouldn't. You also sometimes see meta-analyses of cohort studies. Um, or or even case control studies, although that's not as good. But, but cohort studies, that's problematic, and a lot of statisticians will lose their minds and pull their hair out if they see you do that. Because, um, you know, you have a big cohort study, you have another big cohort study. I'm not sure, they would argue you don't really gain much in trying to sort of pull it together into an even bigger cohort study. Because at some point, it's just so massive, you're going to get statistical significance even when there is no clinical significance. And so... Uh, meta-analyses still need to be looked at to see if I would say they're quote-unquote better than randomized controlled trials, but certainly they can be sort of a big collection of like, like of homogeneous randomized controlled trials is a great thing. Lord knows, you know, when I'm looking for research or looking to talk about a subject, a good meta-analysis is about as good as it gets. I think a quick sidestep, and you just hit on it, is the difference between statistical significance yeah. and clinical significance. Right. Because often we see something is statistically significant, but when you actually try and apply that to your clinical practice, it's not going to make a difference. No. So, you know, statistical significance at its heart just basically means that we think there's a fairly good chance that the results we got is not by chance alone. That... Um, if we set what we call the null hypothesis to say these two things are unrelated, that if we get a certain result that we say is statistically significant, we mean it looks like 
that this could not have happened by chance alone if these two things were... I want, I'm going to have to think about it again. We're unrelated. I want to make sure I say that again to make sure I get it right. So if we say that two things are not related and we find a result that, that is... That where it really looks like they're related and we run statistics on them and we say, well, this really is unlikely to have happened if they're unrelated. We can reject the null hypothesis which says they're unrelated. That's statistical significance. Clinical significance is the, do I care? Does it matter in clinical practice? Where you know we can find that, let's take a drug for instance, a drug may make things better on a metric that we've picked and it's statistically significant where we say we have proved that drug A, you know, that this drug is better than nothing in improving this symptom. Clinical significance would I be would be like, would a patient even notice that? Are we extending their life in such a way that matters? Uh, are we doing actual good or is this just something where, yeah, it might matter on the paper, but it doesn't actually matter in real life? Or maybe there's a maybe you improve life for a patient somewhere, but it's so few patients that it almost doesn't matter in the scheme of things, which is probably a good way to get into the number needed to treat. I was going to say, this is just naturally flowing into the next things that we want to cover. Right. So that's the next, the the leading question is, well, how do you know how clinically significant a treatment is? And one of the, the, the most easy ways to show a patient of like, will this matter to me, is a statistic we call the number needed to treat. In fact, that now it's worth taking another step back. And we should really talk about the difference between a relative difference and an absolute difference. Because those are, actually that I'm sure will show up on the boards. But, you know, I can have a drug and I can put it on TV and say, you know, this reduces your risk of death by 50%. And you'll go, that's amazing. But of course, what matters is not the 50% reduction in death, but what was my risk of death before and what is my risk of death after? Because if I have a disease which kills, you know, two out of every four people that it affects, and then I drop it to one out of every four people, that is a 50% reduction. I went from two to one. But that's monstrously huge. I mean, if we've saved, you know, that's saving basically one out of every four people. That's amazing. If, on the other hand, I have a risk, a disease which kills 0.0000005, and I just lost track to my 0.00005% of people, and instead it now kills 0.00025% of people, that is also a 50% reduction (laughs) in the risk. And I could also go on TV and said, this reduces your risk of death by 50%, but you would not care about that nearly as much as you would reducing it from one and you know from 50% to 25%. But both of those are a relative risk reduction of of 50%. So relative risk is basically the old risk or the new risk divided by the old risk. That's it. So it would be 25% over 50%, that is a 50% reduction. Absolute risk reduction is basically you take the 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 old risk, you subtract the new risk and you you divide it by 100. So if if 50 out of 100 people were dying, and now 25% 25 out of 100 people were dying, that is an absolute reduction of 25 time, you know, over 100. So 20, we're basically now reduced. That's an absolute risk reduction of 25%. That's huge. You'll never see that almost in real life. But on the other hand, if we had like, you know, 0.000001 and 0.000005, that's an absolute risk reduction of something incredibly small. It's like 0.000005. And so, the absolute risk reduction is what we care about. A number needed to treat is you take the absolute risk reduction and you divide it by 100. Uh, one, I think no, it's one over. 100. Sorry, I'm, it's 100. Sorry. Right. <laughs> you can click that. 
the the app the the number needed to treat is a hundred divided by the absolute risk reduction. So if I have an absolute risk reduction of twenty five percent, the number needed to treat would be a hundred over twenty five is four. That's what we saw in that first problem. So if you went from fifty percent of people dying to twenty five percent of people dying, the absolute risk reduction is twenty five. Therefore, the number needed to treat is a hundred divided by twenty five is four. That means for so I number need to treat like it is four. That means for every four people I treat, one more will get the benefit than otherwise would have not. Which number needed to treat of four is pretty good. Is almost unheard <laughs> of in the world. Like if you if you find something with a number needed to treat of four, you should lock it in. That's something. So recently there was actually a New England Journal of Medicine paper which talked about exposing young kids to peanut protein in the in the in the interest of keeping them from getting allergic. Of peanuts, and they found that in the high risk population, the number needed to treat, if I remember correctly, was four. That for every four kids that we exposed to peanut protein who are at high risk for peanut allergy between the ages of six months and five years, one of the four will not become allergic to peanuts that otherwise would have. That's like, again, I can't describe that's unheard of. Most number needed the treats that we know in like the world are in the order of you know, hundreds, sometimes even thousands. Like when we talk about, you know, interventions to reduce heart disease, it's often like, a, you know, thousands. But that, we do it because heart disease is so prevalent that even if one out of a thousand is reduced, that's still a pretty big deal. The problem is when we get into sort of how much should we pay for this and how much should we not. One out of a thousand is, is, you know, it's still like that means that 999 people that take the drug don't get the benefit. They get all the side effects, but they don't get the benefit, which is why... It's really important when you're talking about, you know, number needed to treat and how many people are going to see a benefit. Number needed, you know, that is the statistic that you should use. So again, that's 100 divided by the absolute risk reduction. I just want to make one more clarification here. When he speaks about absolute risk reduction, he has said 25 multiple times. This is completely correct. However, normally in test questions they are reported as a percentage so it'll be like either a 0.25 or 25 percent the reason that's important is for when you're calculating your number needed to treat it's going to be one over your percentage so if it was 25 percent it would be one over 0.25 hopefully that clarifies hopefully that clarifies the flip side of that of course is the number needed to harm and that's when we talk about side effects. So if we show that you know giving a drug causes an absolute increase of 10% of people are getting, say, diarrhea from taking an antibiotic, that number needed to harm, therefore, is 10. Because it's, you know, it's one, if it's an absolute increase of 10%, 100 divided by 10 is 10. That means for every 10 people I give the drug, one is going to get diarrhea that would not have otherwise. That is also important because sometimes side effects are severe. So sometimes when you look at some drugs like statins, um, when they talk about that you can have an, you know, an absolute risk or a number needed to harm for some things like you know, muscle pain or you know, diabetes is even a concern, the number needed to harm is much lower than the number needed to treat, which means you're much more likely to get a harm than you are to get a benefit. And if the harm is a significant concern to you, you should think twice about, about doing it. But again, that's where you get into number needed to harm and number needed to treat. 100 divided by the absolute risk change, that's how you get it. Wonderful. Yeah, and there's probably one more thing that I should say about, you know, the way that you're going to analyze studies and set up studies, especially randomized controlled trials, because this will also come up on the boards. And that is what we call an intention-to-treat analysis. So part of the problem with human subjects' research, and you, you don't see this as much as animals, although you can, is that they don't often do what we want them to do. We, we sign them to take a drug, they don't take it. We want to do a study of diets, and we find that they don't actually stick to the diet that we do. 
So there's two ways that you could then analyze it. One would be to be like, well, this week we told them to eat the Mediterranean diet, but they didn't eat the Mediterranean diet. So we're going to analyze them in the crap diet that they did eat and throw them in the control group. And so you wind up actually you know, saying, okay, we're doing a study of Mediterranean diet versus not, and we're going to just take all the people that did what we said and ate the Mediterranean diet on one side and all the people that didn't on the other side and see if it makes a difference. That's not good because we need to know in real life well, what actually happens if we tell people to eat a Mediterranean diet? Because that's what happens in real life in the doctor's office. It's you tell people what to do. You don't actually force it down their, their, their gullets, you know, the whole year. So that is not an intention treat analysis. An intent to treat analysis would be we take all the people who were assigned to the Mediterranean diet and we keep them in the Mediterranean diet group even if they didn't eat the Mediterranean diet. And then we take all the people in the other group and no matter what they did that, because that is the intent to put them in the group we treated them in. And this is important in drug trials too, where you can't give some people the drugs and then some people get bad side effects and don't take it anymore, and so you ignore them. You need to know what happens in real life. So an intent to treat analysis means we analyze them in the groups where we put them when we did the randomization, no matter what happened afterwards. And that is sort of best practice. And these days, it's, you know, it's hard probably to squeak a paper by a journal without getting there because reviewers are going to find that immediately. Tease it out. Yeah. Well, it feels like we're uh, really getting into some of the statistics nitty gritty of these studies now. So there's a lot of definitional type stuff that the boards expect us to know. So I think you and I were just kind of on the side chatting about uh, type one, type two error and uh, stuff like that. So maybe we can get into those definitions now. Before I think we even get into those, it's probably worth stepping back and talking about all the other statistics that come up with test characteristics first, because those are going to explain the types of concerns and mistakes or things that we might see that later you cover Absolutely. with errors. So anytime you get a question on the boards that talks about test characteristics, it's probably going to come up with one of those boxes that you've seen a thousand times where it's a four by four box where the, the disease goes on the top and the test goes on the left. And so you will have some problem or you know, you know some issue or some disease and you know they will either say it is positive or negative meaning that it that it is present or absent pick a disease it doesn't matter one column will be they have it usually on the left one column will be they don't have it on the right and on the left side it'll be some kind of test and then you'll either have a positive result which is usually on top or a negative result uh, which is on the bottom and then all the people in the study are lumped into four boxes depending upon what they are they'll be the people that have the disease and had a positive test, they'll be in the upper left. The people that didn't have the disease but have a positive test, they'll be in the upper right. The people that have the disease but had a negative test, bottom left. And the people that didn't have the disease and didn't have and had a negative test, they'll be on the bottom right. An ideal test would only have people in two boxes. They would have the people who have the disease and have a positive test in the upper left. And the people who don't have a disease and don't have and have a negative test, they'd be in the bottom right. That never happens. Because the true in the positives world, and true negatives, right, true, exactly. you will. <laughs> yeah, the, everybody who didn't have the disease would have a negative test. Everybody who had the disease would have a positive test. That'd be a perfect test. It almost never, 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 never happens. You have some people who show up in the top right box, meaning they have a positive test but, a, but did not have the disease. That's a false positive, meaning you got a positive, but it's not real. And then you have people in the bottom left box who do have disease, but don't have, have a negative test, that's a false negative, meaning that it says they don't have the disease, but they really do. Um, you want to minimize those as much as possible, 
and we have some statistics which can tell us about sort of the qualities of a test to tell us how well it performs. The first one you need to know is what we call sensitivity. Sensitivity is the number of people who are true positives, meaning they have the disease and have a positive test divided by all the people who have the disease. So if we were to label the boxes A on the upper left, B on the upper right, C on the bottom left, D on the bottom right, sensitivity is A over A plus C. Again, that's people who have the disease and have a positive test over all the people who have the disease. So clearly, if you have no false negatives, you'd have 100% sensitivity. But the more false negatives you have, the lower your sensitivity will be. Specificity is the number of people in that bottom right box, meaning the number of true negatives or people who don't have disease and have a negative test over all the people who, who, have, who don't have the disease, all the healthy people. So it's D over B plus D. And again, that's, it's, it's really trying to minimize the false positives. So if you have no false positives, you have 100% specificity. But you're trying, again, it's the number of people who have no disease and a negative test over all the people who are healthy or don't have disease. And I feel like this is where the question always comes yep. up. Is they're like, do you want a sensitive test or a specific test if you're trying to rule somebody in versus rule somebody out? Right, so sensitivity, if I'm, if I remember correctly, is a good rule out test. Correct. So the way you should do that is the one thing you always want to remember is spin. S P specificity is for ruling it in. You know, some people then go, well, the other one is snout because you should somehow remember <laughs> that, that that sensitivity is S N is for ruling it out. But but that is the gist of it. So if you're if you're looking to do a rule out, you want to you want to test which is unbelievably sensitive because you absolutely do not want to have a false negative. That's the way you should think. Like you have a kid that comes in, I'm a pediatrician. We have a kid that comes in, it's a baby, it's like two weeks old, it's got a fever. We're absolutely positively panicked they might be septic. So what do we do? We have to rule it out. So to rule it out, we must have a blood culture because a blood culture will pick up anything. It is utterly sensitive. We get more false positives than anything else. But you're almost never going to get a false negative. A kid who's septic is going to have a positive blood culture. You're never going to get a kid in that bottom left box where they are septic but have a negative test. And so that, when you're ruling a disease out, is when you absolutely want the most sensitive test that you could get. When you're ruling a disease in, then you're thinking more, I want specificity, where it's like, okay, well, we've done all these other things, and it's like, now we want a test where we're really, really, really sure that we're not going to get a, uh, a false positive, that if the test is positive, it's going to actually be there. I'm trying to think what this would be, more pregnancy, I think pregnancy, but let me work this out in my head first, <laughs> um, where it's like, if we miss it, we can get the test a week later, but, but you know, you, but, but you want a test where if it's positive, you really want to know that it's going to be positive. We don't want to get a positive test and then have people freaking out that they're actually pregnant when they're not. That That is when sort of... Sometimes what you do is you do one test on one side and then one test on the other. When people were still looking at HIV, this is often what we did at the beginning, where it would be like we do a test which was much more likely to have a false positive on the first run. Um, and then we do a test which is much less likely to have a false positive on the second run, which is why... And again, this is now back in the day. I'm sure they've improved it. But I remember when I was in medical school, uh, this would sort of be the example they would always give. When you first got an HIV test and it was positive, they'd be like, don't freak out. There's lots of false positives in these. We're going to do the second one. But on the first run, it's like we don't want to miss anybody that might have it. So we really, really, really want to minimize the false negatives. But once we got the group, 
that, that have had a positive test, then we really, really want to be sure they have the disease. Then we would switch to a test which had a very low false positive rate. But in general, what you want to think for the boards, all you need to know is for ruling out, you want a sensitive test. For ruling in, you want a specific test. So I just want to step in here and clarify a couple of things. So for a screening test to be functional, you want it to have a high sensitivity, which means there are very low number of false negatives. So when the sensitivity, sensitivity is high, you will basically have very few false negatives, which means you find everyone with the potential for disease. So an example of this would be screening women for cervical cancer using a pap smear. A pap smear is highly sensitive for cervical cancer. So if you screen a bunch of women for cervical cancer with a pap smear, you're going to find positives. However, when you do the confirmation test, which is a colposcopy, you find that many of these women do not have actual cervical cancer. And that is because the confirmation test, the colposcopy, is highly specific with a low number of false positives. So most screening tests, you want the initial screening test to be highly sensitive, but you want the confirmation test to be highly specific. And that way you can kind of grab everyone that might have the disease and then further characterize who actually has the disease with the confirmation test. We should actually take this a step further before we back up. If you get into the boards where they talk about likelihood ratios, sensitivity and specificity are how we calculate likelihood ratios. So if doctors were computers and they really, really could practice, practice in an evidence-based manner, what you do is you could calculate a positive likelihood ratio. And if you have to do this in the boards, it's basically just sensitivity over 1 minus specificity. And you're going to have to memorize that because there's just no other way to do it. And a negative likelihood ratio is 1 minus sensitivity over the specificity. And I'm not even going to repeat those. You could just go look them up if you want to review them. But this is how you use them. If you have, if a patient walks into your office and you can set in your head a percentage chance that you think they have a disease. We call that the, the pretest probability. Sometimes people just use prevalence for that. In other words, like, how many percent of people have a disease in a population that we know about? If it's 12%, that's your pretest probability. Then if you have a positive likelihood ratio, you know this, then you can multiply. If you first, ah, uh, let me back up. First thing you need to do to use likelihood ratios, and it's very unlikely you have to do this on the boards, but if you have to, just to know it, you have to calculate the pretest odds which is slightly different than the pretest probability. So pretest probability, again, is the percentage chance you either think a patient has a disease or the prevalence. Then you need to create pretest odds, which is basically prevalence over 1 minus prevalence. That's all it is. So you convert the probability or the prevalence into odds by prevalence over 1 minus prevalence. Then, once you have the odds, you can take pretest odds, multiply that by the likelihood ratio if the test is positive use the positive likelihood ratio if the test is negative use the negative likelihood ratio so you take pretest odds multiply it by the likelihood ratio you wind up with post-test odds you can then back calculate that into post-test probability by taking post-test odds divided by post-test odds plus one then you wind up with a post-test probability and that's the chance your patient has the disease after so if we all were computers and could run the math you'd be like and this is the, the best test that I know. Again, I'm a pediatrician for this. Is, uh, is I always use the example of a strep test because I'm like, tell me what I use. I say to residents all the time, and even medical students when I see them, what is the percent chance you think this kid has strep? Then we have the test. 
Then you can see that the chance afterwards by doing all the numbers, because we have massive good data on what the sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios are on a rapid strep test, you can see the post-test probability that they have strep. And the, the thing that I often find is that it almost doesn't change things enough. Like people think there's this massive thing where you go from 0% to 100%. It doesn't work that nope. way. It's almost always like you go from 40% to 60%. And I'm always like, what threshold do you need to treat? And they're like, 30%. I'm like, then why bother to get the test? Because <laughs> if your pre-test is already above your threshold, just treat. Because a positive test is not going to make you more likely to treat. You already would have treated. Exactly. So, and if your pre-test probability is so low that even a post-test probability would be below your threshold, don't bother to get the test. Because again, if, if this isn't going to change things enough to do it, then not. There are these handy nomograms, which you can see all the time, and I, I don't even know if they use them on the boards, where basically, you know, they, they have three lines. You could look this up online. Um, but on the left side, they'll have a pretest probability. On the right side, post-test probability. And then they have all the likelihood ratios in the middle. And you can actually draw a line, instead of doing the math, from your pretest probability through your likelihood ratio to find out what the post-test probability would be. And what's often instructive in this is you can see how little tests actually change the probabilities. And then, therefore, we're actually doing way too many tests when we don't need to. But again... Because it's almost like if you thought it in the first right. place enough to want to test it, then or, you were already or the opposite. There. I often say to my, I say to the doctors that I'm training, if this test will not significantly alter your threshold for treating, there's no reason to get the test. There is none. Nope, you're Just right. do what you thought to begin. And it's surprising how often this is. This is often when we wind up to where, where people will get tests and be like, I don't know what to do with that. Yes, because <laughs> because it, again, like if a negative test is not going to affect your 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 process probability, and the vast majority of tests are negative, then don't bother. But Again, getting off the philosophy, back to the boards, um, you're just going to need to know what a pretest probability is, what a likelihood ratio is, what pretest odds are, how to use the pretest odds and the likelihood ratio to get a post-test odds, then calculate it back into post-test probability. And even though no one does these calculations in real life, they do philosophically change how we should think about using tests and how we should treat. None of that is how patients think, though. None. <laughs> Patients do not think in terms of if I have a disease, whether the test will be positive or not. What they think about is if I have a positive test, does that mean I'm sick or not? And so patients care about pre what we call uh, positive predictive value and negative predictive value. And because we care for patients, doctors care about that too. So if we went back to our box with A, B, C, D, um, you'll remember that sensitivity and specificity look at the columns. Positive and negative predictive value look at the rows. So positive predictive value is A, meaning, again, that I have the disease and I have a positive test, um, over A plus B, or all the people with a positive test. So it's focused on the test, not on the disease. Of all the people who had a positive test, how many of them had, had actually had the disease? So this is the thinking of like, if I have a positive result, how likely is it that I actually have the disease? Um, and so you want to minimize in this to get the best positive predictive value, you want to minimize the number of false positives. And so again, it's the idea that, that if I have a positive test, do I really have cancer? You know, that kind of thing. Negative predictive value is if my test is negative, how likely is it that I don't have the disease, that I'm healthy? So this is about minimizing, again, false negatives. I, I want to know that if I have a negative test, I'm really in the clear. 
And so negative predictive value is D, or that box which talks about healthy people who have a negative test, over all the people who had a negative test, or C plus D. So it's D over C plus D. It's the idea that if I have a negative test, how short am I that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm healthy? And we'd like it to be 100%. It almost never is, just because, of course, there's some. The problem with positive predictive value and negative predictive value is that they are very reliant on the prevalence of the disease in the population we did the study. If I take uh, a population of people where 50% of people have the disease and I make my test a coin flip, it look it could have the same positive predictive value and negative predictive value as it would look much, much, much better than it really is. We know that the positive predictive value of a coin flip is zero. <laughs> but if I take it, a thing where the disease is 50-50 and the test is 50-50, then my positive and negative predictive values will look like they're 50%. You could probably add in the numbers here and think about it. Because, again, it's just plugging the same number into all four boxes. And so your positive predictive value is, is, is 50. Your negative predictive value is 50. We know the coin is useless. <laughs> but if the disease is prevalent then the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value can look much, much better than they really are. If, on the other hand, I have a perfectly healthy population, then it also can look very different um, with respect to the coin flip. If the, you know, it, it, Again, the coin flip we know is, is zero, but a positive predictive value and negative predictive value would look very different in that population. So when you use a positive predictive value and a negative predictive value from a study that you've read, you have to be really careful to make sure that the population that they did the study in looks just like the population that you were using. If they did the study in a population that was very high in prevalence of HIV, for instance, if they then, then to go to a, a, an area where it's very low and to use the same test characteristics and talk about positive predictive value and negative predictive value would be a huge mistake. Sensitivity and specificity are much more isolated from prevalence, which is why we favor them, which is why they're used in the likelihood ratios, which is why they make sense, that's what we should do. That's why you can have even different pre-tests and post-test probabilities, we expect that. We don't have to have the same prevalence. That's why we use those mostly. Unfortunately, again, what patients care about and what doctors talk about most is, most is positive and negative predictive values, but those, again, you can't stress this enough, and this could show up on the boards, are very reliant on prevalence you must make sure that the, your population that you're applying them to is the same where they were derived. I feel like that's always a question is they ask what affects positive and negative yeah. predictive values. So I think that's definitely worth rewind, listen to that again. The box that Dr. Carroll's been describing is very easy to just write down on a sheet of paper as soon as you sit down for your test, and then you can forget about the, the statistical calculations because they're, your brain is on the paper already. Yeah. So if you draw out the boxes, sensitivity and specificity down the columns, positive predictive value and negative predictive value in the rows, you can move on. So now that we've got a good sense of what those are, and we understand what a positive a false positive is and a true positive, we can take that knowledge and actually go back to statistics and analysis and talk about you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 error, which almost always show up on the boards. So um, there are generally two types of errors that go into calculations. The first is type 1 error. Type 1 error is the chance that the significant result that we found is actually incorrect. It's the chance that we reject the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis is actually correct it's the same as a false positive finding. It's, in other words, we got something that's significant, but it really shouldn't be. That's a false positive. That's type 1 error. Most people set type 1 error as 0.05 or 5%. That's where you get the p-value is less than 0.05. 
All you need to really know is that the lower the type 1 error rate that's acceptable, the larger your sample size needs to be. So the more, the lower you want type 1 error to be, the bigger sample size you need. The other thing that we, that we care about in these tests and when we do statistics is type 2 error. That's the chance that a negative result, which will be a confirmation of the null hypothesis, is wrong. It's the chance of finding a false negative where, like, you've said, oh, we didn't find that there's a, you know, a significant result when it actually exists. Most health studies that you read usually set type 2 error at 80%, although some will go higher and some will go lower. That means that you'd be 80% sure that if you get a negative result, you should believe it. The only other thing you really need to know, I think, when you talk about studies and p-values and things like that as well, is, is the difference between a one-sided and a two-sided p-value. This could, I guess, come up on boards, where basically it's the idea, like we said, like there's only a chance that, one, that, that things could get better. In other words, we're only looking whether diet A made people lose more weight than diet B. That's one-sided. If basically, though, we said, well, we'll check if they could lose more, lose more weight or lose less weight, that's a two-sided check. In other words, we, we consider the idea that it could go both ways as opposed to one way. Most studies are going to be two-sided. Most studies are basically just looking for deviation from the mean. Uh, looking, just saying is like, is the null hypothesis, which says there's no effect, you know, true or not? And so this is more esoteric. But basically, again, if you look at a one-sided p-value, you're likely going to need a larger sample size than if you than if. I'm sorry, if you look at a two-sided p-value, you're likely going to need a larger sample size than if you only look at a one-sided p-value. Most people don't use a one-sided p-value. All right. Well, that was a fantastic review. I think we covered a lot of information, a lot of the good stuff on the boards. Was there anything else that Do we you... need to talk about bias and we need to talk oh, about Oh, yes. Confounding? I think bias and confounding definitely okay. are something that come up too. So... so when you do any kind of study, especially when you don't do a randomized controlled trial, what we're really worried about is that, you know, we were looking for it to see whether some factor we're measuring and some factor and, and some outcome we care about are related. What we're worried about, though, is that maybe there's something else we're not measuring, and that's what's really related. And it's possible that the thing we're measuring is related to the thing we're not measuring that makes a difference. Uh, you know, if, you know if, if there are times when you actually... So if we looked at a bunch of kids and we said, are boys taller than girls? And we, we just got a bunch of boys and girls again, and we found out that, you know, oh, look at this, all the girls are, are taller than all the boys, therefore girls are taller than boys. But we didn't measure how old they were, and it turns out that all the boys were measuring were two, and all the girls we were measuring were 16. That, that would screw everything up. And because we didn't measure the age, we didn't know if it was. And you could do the reverse of it. Let's say we said, are two-year-olds bigger than... Then sixteen, it, it can get it can get screwed up in many ways. So you try to measure as many factors as you can, in the sense that you want to remove these kinds of biases. Now, sometimes biases people think of the word bias and they think, well, they're trying to to, to commit fraud. But it's unconscious bias that we matter, or you know, bias that we can't measure that can make a difference. If all the people we're getting into our study are rich, then that would be a bias that we we can't figure out. If all the people that we get into our study are of one race. That would be a bias that we can't measure. And those things can get tied up with each other in ways that, that actually affect the outcome that we need to care about. So when we try to account for these things in analyses, we try to control for them, which, and you control for what we call confounders. Confounders are, are variables that we believe could also affect the outcome that we care about, um, but are not the outcome that we're measuring. And so if we cared about height, 
let's say if you're doing a study of height and we wanted to look at you know whether boys and girls we would care about age we'd care about whether they went through puberty we'd care about what their nutritional status was we might care about their race we might care about how tall their parents were there's lots of other factors that i just mentioned which also could affect height besides sex and we want to make sure that we account for all of these confounders confounders are biases that we sort of know about and that we can measure Unfortunately, most studies that we do that are cohort studies or observational studies, they're going to be biases that we can't measure. And so we can't, we can't account for them because we either don't have the data, we didn't collect it, or we just don't know. Again, this is why randomized controlled trials are the most powerful because in an ideal world, if we're truly randomizing people one way or the other, in a perfect world, all of these unconscious or unknown biases should not matter because they should be equal between the two groups if we're truly randomizing people perfectly, which is another reason that the RCT is theoretically the most powerful because it allows us to overcome or theoretically overcome these unknown or unconscious biases uh, in the best way possible. We can try to control for the confounders the best way we can in observational studies to achieve a more uh, valid result, which is another thing I guess we talked about, um, you know, a result that we believe, but but the only way to really account for that is a randomized controlled trial, which which it's a, we should take another step here and talk about, you know, validity. When we talk about tests, we care if they're valid and we care if they're reliable, um, which are really getting at two things. One is precision and one is, what's the two? Accuracy. Uh, okay, which really gets at whether they have precision and whether they have accuracy. The best example that I can give for precision and accuracy, unfortunately, uh, have to do with, let's say we were um, you know, trying to, to shoot a gun at a target. And every time, if, a gun, if, if, the, if our shooter is neither precise nor accurate, everything's going to be all over the map. We're never going to hit the bullseye. We're just going to be, or sometimes we'll hit the bullseye, but it'll be random. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. If someone is accurate but not precise, then they will actually have a bunch of clustered shots all around the target where if you average them all out, you get to the center or what we want, but they would be sort of spread out. If you are precise, they're clustered together really great. Now, so But if you're precise but not accurate, you'd have a bunch of really tightly collected gunshots, but they'd all be off-center. If you're precise and accurate, they're all tightly together. They're all right on the target. The best test is precise and accurate. Um, sometimes you just can't get precision. If I'm running a race or if I'm, I'm you know, clocking people running a race, but my watch only has a second hand, I can only get to the nearest second. And as we've seen, you know, you watch the Olympics, people can be super close. If I, that will, that's, you know, reasonably, you know, accurate, but it's not very precise. I can't nail it down. On the other hand, I could get much more precision if I have like a laser and I can get to like you know, the hundredth of a second, that's much more precise. They're both reasonably accurate, but one is much more precise than the other. And you can imagine if something's not accurate, it's just all over the map. It's just, right. you don't know if you're getting it. A test is reliable when it gives us the same result again and again and again and again and again. A test is valid when it's giving us the result that we believe is to be true. You know, when you when you hear va- reliable, you just know that it's going to work. You know that you're going to get the same result theoretically. When a test is valid, it's going to be good. Um, you're going to get the work. When it is precise, it's going to be like tightly centered around the same. That if you run the same test again and again, you're going to get the same kind of answer. If it is accurate, you're going to theoretically get the right answer. You want it to be accurate and precise, but if it's accurate and not precise, you might need to do the test a bunch of times and then average, average them to get, to get the best one that you're going to get. Perfect. All right. Well, again, that was a fantastic re- review. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time to sit down with us today. Happy to do it.
Thanks, Dr. Carroll. Sure.